If you're visiting this morning um, for the first time or if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, uh, uh, welcome. Uh, We're glad you're here. Um, I need to tell you, and um, even those who have been here a couple of weeks, uh, I need to remind them at least, um, you come this morning and uh, we've been jumping into and swimming in the deep end of the pool. Um, deeper than usual. I hope uh, we're always challenged to go deeper in our knowledge and understanding of our great God. Um, but we've been especially uh, in the deep end of the pool when it comes to hard questions. Hard questions um, about God and about life. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed to come up with a more difficult question than the question of pain and suffering and misery in the world in light of a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-good. And that's the question we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Uh, Theologians call this question or that problem or tension, theodicy, or the problem of evil. There are a variety of ways you can ask the question. I mean, one way to get at or ask that question is the title that I gave to the sermon series uh, with respect to those tragedies and awful things. Is God to blame? And maybe a longer version of that question or What that question presumes um, is something like I've just said, since God, we know clearly from the Bible, is all-powerful and in control and all-good and unsurpassable love, since God is all of those things, then why? Why the relentless presence of evil and misery in the world? Last week, um, I suggested that if our attempt to answer that question or forms of that question is only or even predominantly concerned with the power of God, God's omnipotence and control, if we only use that lens, we risk ending up with a pretty thin answer because that answer is based on an incomplete picture of God, and that's because God is not only or even predominantly about power as we understand it, To use an illustration, um, if we only peer through a window uh, uh, called power as we view and try to understand and get to know God, if we only use that lens, if that's the only thing we use, we can end up with incomplete answers to the question because that window is framed and there's more then we can see using that window only more to God than power. And so last week I suggested to you that 
we stand to find a clearer picture of God or a more complete picture of God or to see more of God at least if we also, when answering hard questions like the one, is God to blame, peer through the window of what I'll call love and especially since it's the ultimate expression of love, the love of God expressed in Jesus. Use that lens. Jesus tells, us, tells his disciples who have spent time with him, hey, if you've seen me and since you've seen me and know me, you have seen the Father. And you remember, Philip doesn't get it. He immediately says, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. And Philip, <laughs> I picture Jesus going, And then he says again in John 17, no, Philip, really, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if we also use that window of love and love expressed in Jesus, Jesus the truest picture of God, Jesus the center of Scripture, Jesus everything the Old Testament points to and everything the New Testament through today emanates from, until he comes again. You get the idea that Jesus is the point. We stand to get a clearer, more complete picture of who God is and maybe better answers or more complete answers to hard questions like, is God to blame? Now, I have been on my knees um, before the Lord more than ever in uh, preparing this series. Because I'm faced with this challenge. I so badly want to help equip people with a deeper and greater understanding of who God is. I so badly want to do that. I so badly want to enable people, if they feel any barrier whatsoever, to really, truly feeling the great big bear hug uh, of love that God wants to give and is trying to give us. If they're feeling that it's hard to return uh, that love for any reason, if they shy away from it for any reason, I so badly want to remove those barriers. And my challenge is, you say, well, so what? Then why don't you just do it, Pastor? Uh, here's what I've been on my knees in prayer over. To do it, I have to push against and ask you to reconsider and ask you to think about again um, some sacred cows for many of us in the church. And what I mean by sacred cow is, boy, uh, don't say anything about that. I don't even want to talk about that because it's so near the foundation of my faith and my thinking that as soon as you want to talk or dialogue about that, I, I'm going to shut you off and label you as uh, whatever it is, and I'm going to stop listening. And in this area in particular, when we talk about the windows of power and love, I can feel that tension, 
And I worry about, in particular, uh, the sacred cow in the church concerning God's power or God's sovereignty. So I've been on my knees in prayer over that, that I don't divide, that I don't offend, at least to the point of you standing up and storming out. And I have to plead with you, if there's anything that I say this morning or throughout this series that really creates a deep question in you, would you please come and tell me? And let's talk. The series really is far better suited for a classroom setting than from up here, where dialogue is almost impossible. And no matter what I say throughout the series, I want to affirm something. The camera's rolling. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God is in control. I believe that God's will will be done I believe that God is omnipotent and all-powerful. And if it sounds to you I'm suggesting opposite, hang in there with me, please, at least through the end of the series, where I'll try to take those windows of power and love, and instead of having them separate windows, make them a double-paned window. Ooh. I would have done that this morning, but it took me 30 minutes as it was to make that window. <laughs> See, and immediately when I do it, I felt it already. I put up the power of God and the love of God, and I can feel, ah, uh, from, you know, the power of God uh, camp, those who like to sit on that sacred cow. And that's my tendency of where I like to sit. And immediately I feel from the power, hey, wait a minute. Are you saying that we think God's power doesn't include love and Jesus? And then from the love camp, oh, wait a minute. Are you saying we don't believe in the power of God and that he is somehow weak? And the answer is no to both questions. These windows aren't exclusive. I'm well aware of that. But I want to take them apart. Here's the illustration. If you really want to know how a car engine works, or if you're trying to diagnose a problem with it because it isn't running very well or it doesn't work at all, one thing you might do is take it apart and that way try to see better what's going on. And that's what I'm doing here this morning. So, again, please be patient with me throughout the series. I promise I'll do my best to put it all back together again in a few weeks when we finish the series. That being said, for some reason, um, maybe because we like power so much, that power window is the one that uh, many of us tend to turn to first when seeking answers to hard questions especially the hard question of why terrible things happen. Because instinctively we say, where's the power to stop that? And what we see when we look through that window only is something that can lead, it doesn't necessarily lead, in my opinion, 
but as something that can lead to what I'll call a blueprint worldview. What do I mean by blueprint worldview? The blueprint worldview asserts that either directly or indirectly, everything in world history follows a meticulous divine blueprint or plan. Good and evil things, a common slogan of the blueprint worldview is, there is a reason for everything. And so according to the blueprint worldview, the ultimate reason why anything happens is that God decided it was better to have it happen than not. And those of you who appreciate the sovereign cow of a blueprint worldview, and I put myself there too, that's where I lean, it's not difficult to see how a power view of God can reach that conclusion. Because Scripture clearly says God is all-powerful. And so then uh, we assume, therefore, if God is all-powerful, then nothing can ever thwart God's will. This is all-powerful. At the very least, so it's reasoned, God always has the power to stop something from happening if he wants to. He's all-powerful. And so whatever happens must happen because God wills it to happen, at least to the point of not being willing to stop it. Moreover, if God is all good, which the Bible also clearly teaches, his will must be perfectly good. And when you take those two together, it can easily follow then that all that happens in history, however horrendous it is, must at least indirectly contribute to the overall good of the individuals in pain and the working out of God's plan for all time. And so a blueprint worldview can very, very easily lead to the conclusion then that God is somehow directly or at least indirectly behind all of the suffering and evil in the world. He must will that Two, the reasoning goes, because God always gets what he wants since he's all-powerful, do you see? And, so the reasoning goes, the suffering and evil must be for the better, since God is all-good. And so if we approach a tragedy like Aurora, with the blueprint only, well, if we approach our story last week where, if you remember, a woman named Melanie, her baby was choked to death during delivery. If we approach such strategies armed only with the blueprint, we might easily end up telling victims of awful things that God must have willed it to happen or planned that to happen. And, and then also telling them that those terrible things are for the best. And this kind of, um, this kind of counsel is common in the church. I read of story after story after story um, this past week of counsel that people dealing with tragedy have received from the church. In one such story, 
All of these true. Several years ago, a little boy was killed by a drunk driver. Before too long, several sincere, loving, well-intentioned Christians reassured his mother that God has his reasons. Leaving the devastated mom thinking that the drunk driver was actually carrying out the will of God and that it was good her son was dead. In another story, a woman was diagnosed with a fatal blood disease. She'd already been suffering for years from an excruciating nerve condition. And in a sincere attempt to comfort her, God blessed their hearts. Some of her fellow church members assured her that God knows what he's doing, even though we can't understand it, for his ways are above our ways. Again, leaving her with the idea that God did this to her or allowed it to happen to her. Along the same lines, a father was speaking at a funeral. He'd just lost his five children because the week before, his wife brutally murdered them. And this dad stood up at the funeral, and after giving just a gut-wrenching eulogy for each child, he said, If the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, he has given and taken away my children. He gave them for a short time, and now he's taken them. The man was trying to accept, again, that God was somehow directly involved what his wife did to his children. And who will ever forget 9-11 when terrorists uh, attacked America? In the aftermath, maybe you remember, maybe you heard, religious spokespersons, you know, they publicly claimed God is punishing America because of its sin, some pointing at abortion clinics, some pointing at the homosexuals, and still others at the ACLU or other liberal groups. Others more wisely were less specific, but nevertheless tried to reassure us that victims of the tragedy, uh, they didn't die in vain because, as one leader put it, there are no accidents in God's providence. And then one story from my own experience. Jill, you'll remember this. Uh, We were at a, a Christian concert a few years ago. You'd all know the Christian group. And the lead singer was speaking to us between songs, you know, as they do. And he actually said, and I quote, and cancer is a blessing from God. You remember that? Joe was sitting next to me, and so I, I, like, I, state of disbelief, I I leaned over whispering, did he just say that? And and she nodded, and then she instinctively put her her hand on my knee. (laughs) Because before I became a pastor, I was trained as a trial attorney. And I'm trained when I hear something that I don't like or hits me to immediately, without thinking, in case I lose the moment, to stand up and shout, Objection! I managed to stay seating, but uh, for me, that was the end of it for the rest of the concert. Mostly my head in my hands, and when I lifted my head up, 
Uh, just looking around at the crowd, wondering how many of them uh, had cancer. Either themselves or in their family, or had lost someone recently. And how it hit them when someone in the name of Christ stood up and told them that was a blessing. I kept thinking, dude, how could you possibly say that to people? Now, maybe, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, never had a chance to say anything to him or ask him. Maybe what he meant, although the context, it wasn't there. But maybe what he meant was that in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that awful, life-sucking chaos of cancer, in the midst of that, God is there with us, blessing us, not with the cancer, with strength and courage and peace and perhaps healing supernaturally. And in the midst of that cancer, we can even be a blessing to others. Maybe that's what he meant. I hope so. Statements like those of the counsel these hurting people received, they can possibly arise from or come out of the blueprint worldview where God is in utter control and his will always happens. And everything and anything, no matter how horrendous that comes down the path of life, is planned directly or indirectly by God. And, in my opinion, those statements, that counsel is based on an incomplete picture of God. Yes, he is powerful, but he's not only powerful. And just because he's powerful doesn't necessarily mean that he wills, desires, directs, causes, allows, ordains, you pick your verb, evil things. Now, Last week, I promised to suggest something to you that I feel adds tremendously to the incomplete picture of God we might get from emphasizing his power and control. Something other than a blueprint. And for that, we turn to that other window into God I mentioned earlier, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when we peer through that window of Jesus to God the Father, instead of arriving at a, a blueprint worldview, we more readily, at least it seems to me, arrive at what I want to call a warfare worldview. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible, the Bible depicts Jesus death and resurrection as an act of war. On the cross and through the resurrection, the Bible teaches God was overthrowing sin and the devil, defeating them. And God even went to the unfathomable extreme of dying a God-forsaken death on the cross 
because the world was not in accordance with God's will, right? His will that the world be reconciled to himself and people to each other. Jesus was God's weapon, according to the warfare worldview, used to win this war, the war over whether or not God's will would be done. Now think about that for a minute. That means, doesn't it, that it is possible for God's will to be thwarted to some degree. And uh, those leaning blueprint worldview like myself begin to twitch and squirm a little bit at that point. I feel it too. But if that were not possible, if God's will could never be thwarted ever to any detail, such as evil, for example, as the world blueprint worldview might lead us to believe, if that wasn't possible, then why would Jesus need to come to bring about God's will? In contrast to a blueprint approach, and perhaps that's too strong, Something that's harder to get to biblically if we only use the blueprint worldview. And we can get to far more easily if we consider the warfare worldview is the truth that God's will is sometimes thwarted by two sets of free agents that God created. God gave them free will. Angels and people. See, it's precisely because fallen angels, we call them demons, it's precisely because fallen angels and humans have rejected God's will for themselves that God went to the extreme measure of dying on a cross. It's why Jesus prayed, and taught his disciples to pray, you know the line, many of you, God, Father, thy will be done. If God's will were always already being done, why would he and we need to pray that it will be done? And Jesus stepped into the war of God's will being done, to quote another line from that famous prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus delivered the decisive blow in that world through his, in that war through his death and resurrection. You know, it's interesting to note on this point as well. Do you know that throughout the Gospels, Jesus never tells anyone that their pain or suffering was caused by God or that it was according to God's will. Without exception, when Jesus confronted the crippled, the deaf, the blind, the mute, the diseased, the demon-possessed, 
he uniformly diagnosed their affliction as something that God did not will. And quite often, Jesus or the gospel authors specify that it was indeed evil forces, not God causing the afflictions. Not once does Jesus suggest that a person's afflictions were brought about or specifically allowed by God as part of his plan. Not once. Nor did Jesus ever suggest that some people suffered because God was punishing them or teaching them a lesson. Not once. And Jesus never asked anybody, well, what in the world did you do to end up in the sad predicament you find yourself in? Even when he was dealing with demonized people. And Jesus not once suggested that a person's suffering was brought about to contribute to their greater good. He certainly never called something as awful as cancer a blessing. I'm sorry, I'm not quite over that one yet. And so here's a simple question that this blueprint worldview leaning man before you has been wrestling with. If Jesus never taught anyone or counseled hurting people that way, should we? To the contrary, Jesus consistently revealed God's ideal will for people by healing them. The Apostle Peter would later summarize Jesus' entire ministry by telling people, yeah, Jesus, he went about healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That's Acts 10. The beloved disciple, John, suggested that the central reason that Jesus came to earth was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3. Far from revealing that everything follows the will of the Father, the worldview, the warfare worldview suggests, Jesus' teaching and ministry reveal a war zone between God and those humans and spiritual agents who oppose him, between God's will and their will. And ultimately, Jesus came to earth to join us in that battle, to take his stand in this war, and the reason he gave his life was to end it. And we know he ended it because he rose again to life, conquering that greatest of all evils God never intended, death. And a real challenge for me, a blueprint worldview leaning person, and a real challenge for me is what does that uh, mean for me today to add that picture at least to what I feel is my incomplete uh, picture if I only go by the blueprint? One thing the war warfare worldview helps me with 
is, boy, it suggests that if we're truly to be like Jesus, then like him, we too are here on earth to take our stand in this war. Yeah, it's a war already won by Jesus on the cross, but it's one where his complete victory isn't yet fully realized. And we'll talk about why that's true next week. But if we're to be like Jesus, we're to do battle against evil. In a word, our chief weapon in this battle against evil is love. Love through prayer, like Jesus expressed. Love through bringing healing, like Jesus did. Love through telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Love through feeding the hungry. Love through laying down our lives for others. But it's a battle we're in. The warfare worldview assures us. And it's a battle that God still stands in with us today. God is not a God who sits on high ground way beyond the front line. He's not a God who's high above this war, watching us from a distance in our foxholes, let alone deciding whether or not we're going to get hit with a grenade in there, according to the warfare worldview. Rather, God is in those trenches with us, fighting with us for us, against the evil forces that would destroy us or devour, devour us like a roaring lion. And if or when the grenade hits us, he gets hit too. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now, I know many of you, perhaps um, like me, grew up in the church and the, the blueprint worldview was um, a predominant window that you were given. And many of you, maybe like me, have even in hard times found comfort and encouragement and peace in dwelling on the biblical truth that God is indeed in control. And yet, it seems to me the warfare, warfare worldview has something valuable needed to add to that picture. So far, I, I know. I've mostly given negative critique to the blueprint and mostly positive to the warfare worldview. I chose to introduce it that way. Down the road, I'm also going to share some positive critique in favor of the blueprint and, and some weaknesses or challenges, at least, um, to the warfare worldview. Time didn't allow that this morning. And by the time we're through, I will do my best to make that double window pane and to put it together again. So help me God, and he better on this one. <laughs> Because I believe both 
are needed to provide a more complete picture of God. Using only one of these windows, either one, risks an incomplete picture of God, in my opinion. So I, I'm going to put it together again, so help me God. Or, you know, our tendency is to want to pick one. I forget the scholar, and I'll try to look it up and give you his exact quote. But he wrote something years ago I thought was very wise, and he said, I'll paraphrase for you, when the Bible gives us truth, that for all the world to us seems at odds. I've given you two passages in your bulletins, for example, as uh, one example among many. I'll ask and invite you to read those on your own, both from the same author, one from Romans, one from Ephesians. One seems to be talking or leaning blueprint, and the other seems to be leaning warfare. But the advice that I'll pass along to you is when the Bible gives us truth that for all the world seems to us at odds, the best counsel I can provide for you, in my opinion, is to do your best to hang on to all of it tightly. Keep wrestling with it in Christian community, and for heaven's sakes, don't divide over it. Keep holding it all tightly together until one day it's resolved. And resolved without our impatiently picking and choosing Bible verses we like and, and ignoring the ones that we don't. Or using strange or stretched interpretations to make the verses you don't like fit with your preferred ones. Instead, my best advice to you is to keep holding it all tightly until one day it will be resolved as it must and will be. And this hanging on to all truth, as the Bible states it, even when we don't fully understand how it can all work together, this requires from us another great attribute of Jesus. In fact, an attribute of his second only to love, in my opinion. And that attribute is Humility. Humility, it often seems to me when I read different authors and I engage and look at what people are saying on tough questions like this, humility, it seems to me, is in uh, too short supply. Everybody wanting to call other Christians things like unbiblical. That's a short step away for many from heresy or false teaching. That's not necessary. <laughs> if I have a different take on the Bible than you do, can I express that in all humility and say, okay, I see that you, uh, the world print, uh, blueprint worldview, yeah, boy, there's a lot in the Bible that talks about God's control. Have you considered this? Instead of, you know that blueprint worldview? You're unbiblical. Now there's a finger in your face. So my advice is hang on to both humbly until it will be resolved one day. 
Next week. Ah, I have to let you go. I'm sorry. It's Nathan's fault. He took so long getting out of the boat. I want to add to our picture of God one final piece. It's a piece that um, both the blueprint and the warfare worldviews rely on, and they need and they use, and it's a piece of free will that God created. I want to add that piece. In there, we'll find answers to such questions as uh, why Jesus' victory on the cross isn't yet fully realized, and an answer to a question I got by email just this past week, week question I've often asked, Okay, uh, a warfare worldview. Why doesn't God just fully defeat the devil right now? And then the week after that, we'll stay uh, for many of us in the deep end of the pool. I know it's the deep end of the pool for me. I want to take a look with you at uh, spiritual warfare. Because if we're indeed called to fight... I want to know more about, um, well, what does that look like? What might that look like? And I know many of you are curious about that, too. You've asked me about it. But for this morning, this takeaway, it seems to me that the warfare worldview does a couple of things. It does much to remove the blame of evil and misery off of God instead of placing it, instead, instead placing that blame at the feet of demons and human beings not acting according to God's will. And when that blame isn't so centered on God as a blueprint might lead us to believe it is, it's my hope and prayer, and I feel it in my own life and being and experience, and I hope you feel it in yours too. As that blame moves off of God and the warfare worldview helps me to get there, I feel more strength and intimacy in that hug. When somewhere in the back of my head, my hug isn't tempered by the thought, wait a minute, you did this to me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <laughs> you are, without question, the Lord, the great I am, the one who is always with us, the one who will never let us go. And you do that in power and in love. And you do that by issuing ordained decrees. And you do that through dynamic and interactive relationship with us in our prayers. And you do that with justice and with mercy.
And Father, you know that especially when horrendous things hit us, we can find that very difficult to hold together. And we can be more susceptible to the devil's lie to Adam and Eve that you can't be trusted. Father, equip us through the reassurance and power and peace that passes understanding through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit to fight against that lie and give us a certainty in particular of your great unsurpassable love for us that when your arms are flung open wide, tears streaming down your face because of the awful pain and misery we've been through, those tears are sincere and the gesture of wanting to wrap us in the bear hug real and help us to run to you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand please uh, for a benediction this morning? This comes from one of the passages I gave you in your bulletins, Ephesians chapter 6. It's the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul here at least gives us a glimpse of life through the warfare worldview window. Hear the very words of God. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. And after you do everything, to stand. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you all.